Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Monsters. I'm Mike. I'm Allison. And today we want to continue with our Rob Zombie trilogy analysis. We're going to go on to Devil's Rejects. Now, this movie, like I said in the previous episode, is definitely a couple of clicks above the House of a Thousand Corpses. House of a Thousand Corpses, you can tell it's more of a low-budget film. Like we said before, it's kind of a collage. It's cartoony. Yeah, it's more stylized. And it's more Halloween-themed. Yeah, it's definitely Halloween-themed. And that's all great. I mean, that contributes to making the movie a lot of fun. But this movie, it's clear that Rob Zombie had more money to play with. And it's definitely the production is much better. Um, It comes off more like a real movie as opposed to an art movie, we could say. And so what are some of the characteristics of this film that differentiate it from the first film? The first thing I think that's really important is that the characters and the writing and the acting are all much more consistent. And it's clear that this movie, I think I made this reference in the last episode about playing it for keeps. I mean, this time, this stuff isn't like a nod and a wink kind of, haha, see what we're doing. We're parroting this film or that film. This film is coming across, I mean, there's still all of those references to the 70s and stuff, but this film is coming across more like, okay, now Rob Zombie's trying to make a film that's much more on the level of Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Last House on the Left or, you know, some of the films. He's, he's really ratcheting it up a couple notches. Oh, yeah, the Last House on the Left influence is very uh, clear. I think that's probably the movie that this movie is most like. Because it has like all that like psychological cruelty and stuff, which then winds up coming back in the end. It's obvious that Ram Zabi is more or less ripping off the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the, you know, cutting someone's face off, uh, cutting the skin off of their face and then wearing it as a mask. Yeah, that happened in the first one too. Yeah, so yeah, it's something that's a reoccurring thing. And um, we know that the first film to do that was Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that very famous dinner scene where uh, Leatherface is wearing uh, the face of... Franklin. Franklin, right. <laughs> the face of Franklin, right, with makeup on and stuff like that. But anyway, going back to comparing these two films, one of the things that I think is really neat, I, I mentioned this before and I only sort of went halfway into it because I was reserving the rest of my analysis to bring up these some of these points with Devil's Rejects. And what I'm referring to is when I talked about how it's a semiotic kind of thing. So there's a season of American horror where uh, it's the Roanoke season. It's supposed to be a reality show uh, about this haunted house. Uh, I think it's in Virginia. Go to North Carolina, I think, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And they're reenacting, you know, what they thought might have happened, you know, 300 years ago, this whole mystery of the Roanoke colony and all this stuff. So when you're watching it, when you're watching American Horror, you're seeing, you already know that it's a reenactment within the show, right? First off, we're watching actors in American horror. So that's your first level. So we got that layer. But then there's this second layer where the characters in the show are actors and they're doing this reality show about the Roanoke colony. And then later in the season, they actually show the real Roanoke people as ghosts, So the real Roanoke people are summoned and then they wind up attacking the actors who are portraying them. And what's interesting about it is the producers of American Horror got different actors, obviously, to play the real 
the so-called real Roanoke people, right? And so the levels of realness, like with makeup and stuff, the degrees to which they go to, to convince us as viewers that, oh, these are the real Roanoke because these are the ghosts, right? So with the real ones, they're obviously dirtier, more rough around the edges because these are supposed to be real people from the late 1500s, early 1600s, right? Yeah, it's like the more Hollywood version, I guess, versus like reality. Right. Or something like that. Exactly. And and when the actors are playing these people, the reality show reenactment thing, they do the best they can to make them look like they're from that time, right? But then when you see the ghosts who are supposed to be the real ones, it's like, oh my God, they're so much more like hideous looking, you know, they have like rotten teeth and, you know, they're suffering from all of these ailments and stuff, you know, because they're malnourished. And so there's these different degrees of reality that they put into that season of American Horror. And the reason why I'm referencing it is because I get the same feeling when I think of House of a Thousand Corpses going to Devil's Rejects. The characters in Devil's Rejects, especially the main three, Baby, Otis, and Captain Spalding, like I said in the earlier episode, that Rob Zombie built enough into these characters, enough depth, so that when they continue on into Devil's Rejects, they can actually hold up as real, full-dimensional characters as opposed to just being part of an art collage, which is what the first movie is. So he was smart enough to know that, hey, if I can do a, a second film, you know, a sequel, I want these characters to continue on. And he does, he did that, and he did a very good job of it. And so what's different is that they all look different in Devil's Rejects. The previous film was this sort of, I could say like if we're using the American Horror reference, that's the fake reenactment of what this so-called deranged killer Manson-like family was. Yeah, because it's all like bright and colorful and like carnivalish and everything. Right, but then in Devil's Rejects, now we're dealing with the real Roanoke people. We're seeing what the house really looks like. And you mentioned that. One of the first things you mentioned was how different the house looks. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and because in the first movie, when the road trip people come to the house, I don't know. It just, yeah, it looks different. And then in the second movie, it's more like a farm. Like, they have all these farm animals suddenly that they didn't have. And the whole compound is just, like, set up differently. But you were saying, like, uh, well, in the first movie, you barely see the outside because... It's raining and all that stuff, and it's just kind of like pieced together so you don't have like a big view. But you're saying how it's almost kind of like the first movie is like a dramatic reenactment and the second movie is like a, a documentary or something yeah, like that of that, what happened. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly the way it comes off. The second movie is much more like a documentary, and I think that's intentional. I mean, a good analogy would be like when you're a little kid and you go somewhere, let's say it's Christmas time, because it's Christmas time, and you remember some house that was decorated a certain way, and as a little kid, it was bigger than life. It was just, it was full of fantasy and mystery, and, and then you go back 30 years later when you're an adult, and it's just like this little house with a couple lights and a couple, and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe when I was five, I thought this was like, this was like Santa's workshop or something, you know, winter wonderland. And there's just that shift in, in how we perceive things. And that's the genius, I think, of the second movie is Rob Zombie was totally aware of that. So when you watch the first film, that's like the house when you're five years old and you don't really see everything. There's lots of dark corners and, you know, it's it's raining. It's, it's like you said, it's Halloween themed and all that other stuff. Oh yeah, and they, they have like tons of decorations everywhere. Like the whole place is decked out like an attraction or something. Something. But in, yeah, in the second movie, it's like, 
It's just like this grimy house with like a dungeon in the basement, you know? Yeah, it's much more like, okay, this is what was really going on there. It didn't have all that other stuff. It's really just like Spawn Ranch, you know? It's just Spawn like, Ranch. yeah, like where the Manson family lived. It's just like this dirty, rundown place that, like, you know, it's all depressed and everything. And so, yeah, and, and of course, Otis looks very different in this movie than he does in the first. In the first one, Rob Zombie goes through much more of an effort to really make him look like an albino. In the second movie, it's sort of like, really? Like, I don't know. Like, I guess I'm not seeing it. In the second one, he's just a, like a regular dude. Like, just like a, I don't want to say redneck because he doesn't really seem that Southern. But, you know, just like a off the grid dude, you know. And like you said, Baby pretty much looks the same. I mean, I still feel like in the first film, while her appearance doesn't change much, the way she acts does. So, for instance, she has this laugh in the first movie. It's almost like a, like a Snoopy uh, I can't remember who else it reminds me of. Oh, I know who it reminds me of. You know, in um, in Tiny Toons, that girl that squeezes all the animals to death? She kind of reminds me of that, like with her voice. Yeah, but she uses the laugh in a very mean way. It's like she's teasing the other girls who are being held captive. And it's just, it's a very taunting kind of like mean girl. Like she's definitely laughing at you, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. And she doesn't do that at all in the second film. And there are scenes where she could be doing it, but it's it's almost as if like, no, that was part of my comic book persona. Yeah, she in the second one, she's more like an adult. Like in the first one, I think they're going for like, you know, that whole like, oh, we've been isolated so long. Like the adults are like children, you know, and all that stuff. Kind of like Spider Baby, I guess you could say. But yeah, in the second one, she doesn't seem stunted like that. She's more just like a, a woman, you know? Yeah, exactly. But like a deranged, you know, yeah. <laughs> sadistic person. <laughs> yeah, not a normal woman. I mean, all but, three yeah. of them are. <laughs> and then the last one I think is the most revealing, uh, no pun intended, but you know, when somebody wipes the makeup off of their face and is no longer a clown, they're revealing their true identity. And I think that that's the most symbolic way of presenting this shift from art collage dreamy film, cartoony film to a film that's much more like a documentary, like what you're seeing. You know, like we said this before about Texas Chainsaw and, and Last House on the Left is like, what you're seeing is the true story. It's based on true events. And I think that's what Rob Zombie was going for in this film. He's like, he wanted you to think that, okay, this is, this is like those 70s films where it's almost semi like docudrama kind of thing. So when Sid Haig is no longer Captain Spaulding because he just, he's no longer the clown and for the rest of the film, he never wears the makeup. You know, he's just, it's like Rob Zombie's way of saying, okay, this is game on now. Like these are the real killers. That's a, that's one of the aspects of this trilogy. I'm going to say trilogy because there is a third film. I mean, because the whole thing really resolves at the end and you don't really need three. Plus the third movie was how many years later? It's more than 10, right? Yeah. I think because, okay, the first one was 2002, I think. Then this one is 2005. And then the third one just came out a couple of years ago. So was it 2018 or 2019 yeah, or something? Yeah, I think 2019 perhaps. Yeah. yeah. That's very similar to The Godfather Part 3. I mean, there's just, I think it was 15 years between two and three. So I think we are going to do an episode on the third film, but I feel like this trilogy is really about the first two films. Let's just put it that way. When I was watching the movie, I noticed a lot of parallels between the first half of the movie and the second half, because basically, you know, if you don't know the movie, like, that well. It's like the first half, you know, the house gets raided by the cops because the sheriff is the brother of the cop that they killed in the first movie, and he's, like, out for revenge. And then the first half, Baby, Otis, well, mostly two of them, but then Spaulding, you know, they go on, like, this terror campaign where they're, like, killing people and tormenting people and everything. But then when the sheriff gets them, 
he does all the same stuff back to them. And I literally mean he does all the same stuff back to them. Here's all the parallels I noticed. Okay. So when Otis and Baby, they go into this hotel and there's like this country rock band there. That's like two couples. They take them captive. Actually, the first thing is that they insult them and they say like, oh, you're just like fake country, not real country. But in the first movie, that's how Baby and Otis are dressed. Like he has like a Kid Rock type of outfit and she has like the female version of that. It's almost kind of like in the second one, they're making fun of their, like those people would be them in the first movie. But now because they're more gritty, they're making fun of them. And then in the hotel room, one of the ladies is in the shower and they pull her out of the shower naked, which is the same thing that happens to Baby when at the end the bounty hunters come and get them and they pull her out of the bath. Then Otis is in bed with a hooker and they shoot her in the head and she lands on him where in the hotel room they shoot the roadie and put him on the ground in front of everybody else also when the sheriff has them all captive he does like the whole run rabbit run thing which is from the first movie and he also breaks the windows of the car that baby's in and this is a repeat of the scene from the first movie too it's like a mirror image Like, the end is a mirror image to the first. Because here's the thing. Like, some people say the sheriff is worse than them. I don't think he's worse than them. I think he's the same. I think he's literally, like, a copy of them. Like, it's like a Rorschach test or something, like, folded in half, where the second half is, like, imitating the first. I don't think that the sheriff is any worse than they are. He's certainly as bad. But there's one major difference. Once again, the genius of it is that I made this point in the last episode about the first film. I said there's no one to root for because... The victims, we never get to know the victim. Rob Zombie is very clever about he doesn't develop them enough. And he doesn't even really make them likable. They kind of complain a lot and they're kind of spoiled. And this is very much from the 80s when, you know, these uh, slasher films from the 80s where, you know, you you want to see the them get killed because you don't like them until you get to the final girl and for some, she's like the only sympathetic character she's the only one who's has any depth built into her and that's the way all these 80s films are and they just it's a template they just they're all copying each other but Rob Zombie's of course a better filmmaker and understands storytelling much better than these crappy films from the 80s and so he knows okay I'm not going to have any the final girl in my first film you're not going to know who she is either like there's not going to be any redeeming qualities but then we can't root for the killers either. I mean, we can just say, oh, it's fun because it's all make-believe. We're not really rooting for sadistic killers. Very few people do that, right? So there's really no one to root for. But in Devil's Rejects, you do find yourself rooting for Otis, Baby, and Spaulding. And the reason why is because Rob Zombie is, he's really clever in the sense that the only characters that he humanizes are those three. It doesn't take away from any of their crimes. When a filmmaker, when a director humanizes someone, it brings us, the viewers, closer or makes us empathize with them more, right? So he doesn't humanize the sheriff and he doesn't really humanize the other victims, the so-called fake country band. I mean, these are just people who are just strolling in and out of the movie. We don't really care about them. It's just sort of like a continuation of the first film where Rob Zombie doesn't care to develop these characters. But the sheriff, he does develop. We get to see that he, he wants revenge for his brother. Uh, he's got a lot of lines. He's, you know, one of the main stars of the film, but he's never humanized. There's never, you don't see a scene where, I think there's one scene where he's holding his brother's picture. That's about it. 
it's not even like a moment of sadness. He's not weeping. He doesn't go to his brother's uh, grave or, or there isn't a scene where he goes to visit their mother and he's humanized in that way. It's really, he's just pure revenge. He just wants to get even with them. Well, there is a scene where he talks to his brother's ghost like in a dream, but his brother is just like, kill him, <laughs> kill him for me, you know? Right, exactly. And that really cements it, right? His brother is the personification of revenge. He says, you know, just kill him, just get rid of him, you know? Whereas with baby Otis and Spaulding, they're actually like hippie scenes where we see them just chilling and like there's really nice music playing and they reveal like this softer side, almost as if like, hey, we're not murderers, we're just confused hippies and, you know, we're just bathing in the sun and we're, and you like with the sun in the background and everything and it's just the power of filmmaking when you're sitting there and you're watching it and the right kind of music is playing, one does have a tendency to say, okay, well, I guess I'm rooting for them. You know, Rob Zombie's manipulating us in that way because ultimately what he's having us do is root for the bad guys, which is brilliant. I think that's brilliant. But yeah, we're sitting there rooting for these guys. And then when they die at the end, it's like, you kind of feel like, oh man. Yeah, they're like these terrible people, but at least they have each other. You know, they can experience happiness or whatever. Whereas the sheriff, he does all the bad shit they do, but he doesn't have anybody like that. Like, he's just miserable, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like if he got his way, what would he do afterwards? He probably wouldn't have a life. I don't know. It's I think that's how the movie tries to get you, like, more on the main character's side. You see what I'm saying about they have each other? They have a family and a sense of family, yes. whereas he just had his brother and his brother's gone now. Who does he have? You know what I mean? What does he have now? Right. You know, and that's you know, if we, if we really analyzed it more from a standpoint of reality and not a film, we would say, well, of course, you know, nobody has the right to kill someone's family member, and then that person has no one. Well, the other three still have each other. That's totally unfair, and they deserve they deserve what they get. They deserve to go to prison, whatever their punishment would be. But thing is, is this is a film, and in the moment of the film, I never find myself rooting for the sheriff or feeling sorry for him or anything. How many countless films have been made where it's pretty much white is white and black is black, meaning it's what you expect, where the the law enforcement guys are the good guys, they're the, they're the ones who wear the white hats, and the villains are the guys who wear the black hats, and the villains ultimately get what they deserve, and that's the way these kinds of stories have been told for decades. What Rob Zombie is doing, he's, he's, he's putting the white hats on the bad guys, and he's putting the black hat on the on supposedly the good guy. And I think that's the genius of the film. So um, I guess we'll be back uh, soon with the third and final episode on uh, the Rob Zombie trilogy. And we'll also, because there isn't as much to say about that film, and because Sid Haig passed away, he's only in the opening scene, uh, maybe we'll also say a few things about Sid Haig. Bye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Leave us five stars and a review. Thanks.